Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles out. Open them up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be wrapping up our study of this book this morning. Um, But before we do, a few things I would like to say. Number one is how thankful I am to be here with you all. Uh, to spend this time uh, together studying from God's Word together, praising God with our lips, lifting Him up and, and pressing one another on. You are a great encouragement to me uh, and, and I pray that I can be an encouragement to you. There's uh, been several uh, rearrangements that we had to make today to, to make sure that we had people here to do things and and some were being asked at the very last minute to get up and, and lead singing or, or preside over the Lord's Supper. And that is always encouraging to me because we have men here that are willing uh, to, to step up and to do that and to meet the, the, the need that we have with their abilities. Uh, but also, not only are they willing, they're prepared. And that, that is always such an encouragement to me uh, when that happens. I would thank Carl and, and Ronnie both for, for doing that on such short notice as I know many of the other men here would be able to do as well. As we get into the lesson, it's very tempting for me just to jump right to 1 Thessalonians 5 and read 12 through 28 and let's start talking about that. But I think it's important for us to see, as we'll, and hopefully we'll see even more as we get into the letter, um, that we need to go start again at the beginning and think just a little bit about what is being said. So I wanted to very briefly remind us what Paul has done in this letter. Number one, he's commended the Christians, first and foremost, for a life lived with a focus placed on eternity. That has been the idea of this book, is these people have eyes that are looking over top of their circumstances towards something much greater. If you remember, these Christians are hated people. They are hated because they serve Christ. And serving Christ means that you realize and you pronounce to the world around you that there is only one God. And they do this in a nation, in an empire, that demands its emperor be observed and worshipped as God. And so these people stood in opposition to their government and to the belief system that the government had. They stood in opposition to the belief system of the world around them that believed in the plurality of gods. There were so many Greek and Roman gods and there was people who made a great business off of selling idols and and, and having people come in and serve in those temples. And they stood against those. They were hated by the world around them. They were hated by the Jews who believed there is only one God. But how dare you have the audacity to say that this Jesus of Nazareth is His Son. These people were hated. We saw that Paul is cast out, forced to run away from Thessalonica three weeks into his journey here. He has a worry, a fear for them that they will look at all of this opposition, all of this hard times that they're dealing with, and that they will shrink back. But that's not what's happened. These people have grown, not just in spite of, but I believe because of, the great oppression that they are facing. They have grown strong. They have developed faith and greater love and a persisting and lasting hope. And yes, as we read through the book, there were some misunderstandings about things. There were some things that they still needed to have cleared up. And there were some encouragements that Paul has to give them and admonishments that he has to give them to abstain from sexual misconduct. But along the way, what we find is these are a people who heard the gospel message. They're not some super breed of Christians. 
There are people who heard the Gospel message, looked at that message as it is, the Word of God, not just the Word of influencing men, but God's message to people of this world, and they allowed that to work in their lives. They allowed that to change their lives. And so as we look at the close of this book, Paul is bringing his last words in this letter. And it seems like many times in, the le- in these, these early letters that were written to the church, oftentimes the last words are some of the most important words. Sometimes that's the underlying meaning of the whole book, are the last things that are said. And we need to, to realize that. Um, Paul is going to leave them with this one little bit of instruction, this one last bit of things to remember. And I I have to think about myself. Paul has told many of these churches, I view you as a father. As a father father would view his children, like he told the Corinthians. I think about this sometimes, about the way that I give instruction to my children. I would have the boys come into our bedroom and say, I need you to do this and this and this. And which one do I save for last? The one that I really want to get done. The one that I don't want to get lost in the shuffle of things that I said and, oh, we forgot about that one. So I saved the last one as the one that said, I really want to make sure this one happens. So I think it's important for us to pay close attention to Paul's closing words and not just think, oh, that's him saying goodbye to a bunch of people. Sometimes it's very easy for us to do that. And so as we read through this together, let's really make sure that we think about what Paul is saying in light of the whole letter that he's written and how he has saved these words for the very end. Let's start off just by reading a a few verses together. Verses 12 through 14. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And so he starts off giving them some instructions on how they are to conduct themselves towards one another. He wants to talk about how the life that they have lived and and the things that they have, have overcome, the oppression that they've faced, and what that has produced in them. This focused life. On, that's not looking at the world around them. It's looking at eternity. He said, if that's the life that you're living, let's talk about how that should, should, should cause you to conduct yourselves towards one another. And he begins by saying, we request this of you. He's going to close this letter saying, these are some desires that we have of you for your conduct. And again, as I said at the beginning, I think it's important to realize this is where he ends the letter. Not where he begins it. That is very different to the way that I think we oftentimes think about telling people how to act. That's where I like to start. I'm going to get your act right. I'm going to get your, your, your actions on the right, right page, and then we'll go from there. Paul is ending his letter with telling them some instructions on how they should conduct themselves. Now, I don't know if any of you are like me, but I love telling people to do things. I love that. That's one of my favorite things to do. I get to go to the, to the barber shop and be like, you're going to cut my hair this way. I get to go to the restaurant and say, you're going to make my steak this done. Or, or, or I'm going to send it back. We, we love to have, a, it feels like a little bit of power. It feels like we have a little bit of power in a world where we oftentimes feel powerless. Telling people to do things can be intoxicating if you're not careful. Now, I say those things slightly in jest. But I think we can all see that it's very easy for us 
to want to go to people and say, this is what you need to do. You need to change this. You need to do that. You need to act this way. You need... Paul saves that sort of talk for the very end of this letter. He has spent the whole bulk of this letter talking about who you are, not what you need to be doing. Remember who you are. Remember what has happened. Remember what you have done. He has taken the very long route to get to giving this very instruction, and that's important. And so when we get here, he begins by talking about how they are to treat everybody. He's going to talk about three different things. He's going to talk about leaders, and he's going to talk about teachers. He's also talking about fellow members. And we need to know that he's talking about the whole congregation. He's saying this is how you behave towards them. He says, appreciate them. Appreciate those who labor among you, have charge over you, and give instruction to you. Three separate groups that he says, I want you to appreciate. And when we go back to the beginning of the letter, we find the church in Thessalonica has developed a name for itself. Not the member of the church of Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonica. The group of Christians that meet there have developed a name of faithful workers. Loving laborers who are hopefully persisting in the work of the kingdom of God in the area of Thessalonica. These are working people who work towards magnifying and glorifying God. And he says, you appreciate. You need to appreciate one another. Appreciate those who work hard in the kingdom of God. Care for them. Encourage them. When we think about Hebrews 10... 24 and 25, and think about, well, that's talking about us coming together. We need to think about it in light of this. Coming together to encourage one another. Not coming together to keep a check mark of how many times somebody has visited or not. Coming together to say, I see the hard work that you're doing, and I'm doing hard work too, and I need you to push me on, encourage me, because it's difficult and I feel like giving up sometimes. And maybe you feel that way too, and so I want to push you on as well. And we're going to work together. To make sure that we are showing one another the proper appreciation that we should have towards one another. He talks about those who have a, a charge over top of them. The, the elders of the congregation. The leadership of the congregation. He's saying you think about the responsibility that's been placed upon them and esteem that responsibility as something to, 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 to recognize as, as difficult. Something that is, that is great and a heavy weight that's been placed upon them. So don't make things harder. Talked about that in class this morning. Don't make things more difficult for them. That wouldn't be for your betterment. But rather, appreciate them. Think about that and think about how you can help them to make those decisions better. And Brethren, I know that I, I say that right now. We don't have, we're a congregation without elders. I recognize that to be the case. But we're a congregation thinking about elders, talking about elders, studying about elders, and filled with men that maybe you, you don't feel like you have the quality to be an elder at this moment. Let's keep studying about that more. And I encourage you to think about those things and, and find what is it that maybe hinders me from being a leader of this congregation. Because you know what? I want to appreciate you for that. I want to appreciate you for leading me and my family and the rest of the flock here closer to God. And so let's think about those things and pray about those things. And for the rest of us, let's pray about them as well. And let's think about how once we do have elders, and I hope that we're all praying towards that, once we do have elders established here, we're going to make their lives easier, not harder, because we're going to appreciate them. And we're going to be encouraging them to, to, to continue to lead us in a way that pleases and glorifies God. 
Then he talks about those who give instruction. Whether it be those who, who teach the Word in, in, in Bible classes from this very pulpit, in our homes, whatever it is, he says, appreciate them as well. Appreciate what they do. And what these mean is when we look to people around us, whether they be working hard, whether they be teaching or preaching, whether they be leading us, we don't gossip about them. And we don't complain about them. And we don't backbite an armchair quarterback. You ever heard somebody, wow, man, I wouldn't have done that this way. I wouldn't have made that decision. I wouldn't have used that verse. I wouldn't have taught the class in that way. I wouldn't have done whatever it is. I would have done it different. No, let's not. Let's, we appreciate the work that each and every one of us puts in to, to creating a congregation that is held together by Christ. That is pushing someone where, where we find maybe someone having some trouble. That's the very next thing he's going to talk about is people that are having trouble. We find that and we're going to work towards that. We're not just going to give up on them. We're going to work in those areas. and We're going to work in our homes and we're going to work with our families and with our friends. And we're going to appreciate one another for the work that we do. And so he wraps that up saying, in other words, how do you do this? You live in peace with one another. I can't appreciate you and be at war with you at the same time. He says, live at peace with your brethren. Especially during this time of the Thessalonians where there are so much things that warred against them. So many people that were making their lives harder. He's saying, brethren, don't do that yourselves. Don't make your own lives harder. Look to one another and look at one another with the right attitude. Appreciate them. And then he goes on and gives us three more areas. He says that, that we need to, again... Uh, as, as I said, these three things, you need to admonish the unruly, you need to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then he kind of modifies this whole statement at the end saying, be patient. Be patient with everyone. Now he begins with this idea of admonishment. Admonish the unruly. Admonish means to warn. I think sometimes we think admonish means that I get to take the gloves off and beat some sense into somebody until they get the right idea. That's not what admonish means. Admonish means to warn someone. It is not a spiritual chokehold forcing someone into your desired direction. It says there are consequences to your actions. There are consequences to what you're doing and I want you to know about those and, and, and to know about those with severity. It's not just, oh, you know, if you keep doing that, you, you might get hurt. It's there is real danger in what you're doing. I want you to know. You know, we admonish our children whenever they misbehave. When they, when they talk towards each other with, with hateful talk, we say, you know, talking like that leads to broken relationships. It leads to friendships that, that, are, that are damaged because of a lack of trust and, and, and for feeling hurt by the way that we spoke. We talk about their conduct towards others. And we warn them saying, if you treat other people like that, they're not going to want to be your friends. They're not going to want to hang out with you. They're not going to want to, to play with you. We warn them. We don't go in with you know, a heavy hand every time we hear them say uh, something mean to their, to their sibling and just club them over the head and ask them what they were thinking. But we also, we also warn them, as we have done several times this past week seems like, if your conduct doesn't change, discipline is going to follow. You're going to get a spanking if you keep acting that way. 
We have warned them of consequences, and we don't sugarcoat the consequences. We let them know of the real consequences that they are facing. And so Paul says you need to admonish those who are unruly. That word unruly means someone who is out of control. Someone who is living disorderly. They're not living under the discipline of the Lord Jesus. He said for people like that, you admonish them. You go to them and you warn your brother and your sister when you see this sort of behavior in their lives of the consequences that this is leading to. This is going, these decisions that you're making, they're going to lead you further away from God. The decisions that you're making, they're breaking the relationship that we have with one another. The decisions that you're making could ultimately cause you to completely throw away the gift that God has, has given for you the, you the blood of His Son and lead you to stand before Him in judgment with no advocate, with no hope of salvation. We can't sugarcoat it. We also can't go in with a heavy fist and start forcing people into our ideas of, of, of right and wrong. We must admonish, he says. We must warn the unruly. But that, sometimes I feel like that's kind of where we get the idea that we just stop. It is our job to be the police of this world, to go around just warning everybody, oh, I see things that aren't right in your lives. But he says, no, you also encourage the faint-hearted. I want you to think just for a minute about what he's talking about here when he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you want to leave your fingers over here in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be right back. And we're not going to do a whole lot of flipping around today. This is be about the only time I think that we're going to really leave the book of Thessalonians, but if you'll turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and look with me in just the first couple verses of that chapter. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land in the near future. He says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. If we skip on down a little bit. He's given them the, you're encouraging the people not to be faint-hearted. You're warning... Uh, Telling them, you're reminding them that God is with them. But then in verse 8, he goes down a little bit farther and says, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he may not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Moses is telling the people that are about to engage in battle, Don't be afraid. But if you are, don't be here. Why? Why is He telling them these things? Because number one, they had no reason to be afraid. God is going out before you, He says. God is the one that's going to give these enemies into your hands. You trust Him. Follow Him in the battle. He's going to be the one that strengthens you and gives you the victory. But number two, He's saying don't be afraid because it spreads. It doesn't just reside in one person's heart. It creeps out into others. And the Thessalonians at this time are in the midst, they're in the middle of fierce battles for the cause of Christ. Brethren, we are in the battle, in the middle of fierce battles for the cause of Christ. And they're not battles waged with spears and with swords. They're battles waged with words and deeds and thoughts. People who 
who, who go around and, and claim in this world that they, that they are Christian, that they are following Christ, that they want to hold up the image of God for, for glory, and yet the, the words that they use and the actions that they bring forward tell the world around them, this isn't what, if this is what God is, I don't want to be a part of it. And they don't reflect and they don't honor God in their lives. And brethren, we are to stand for truth. We are to be the light in this world that stands out against that and stands out against the darkness of this world that others might see the true love and, and, and the light of God. And that is a battle. And it's hard. It is hard sometimes to stand in opposition to people, to stand against their actions and their characters that sometimes the world around looks at and says, no, those things are good. I want that. That is inclusive. That is, is loving. That is, is allowing people to have choice. I want that. And we have to stand opposite of that and say, that's, that's a blinder. You think it is. You think it's what is really good. But what's truly good is the love of God and, the, and His Word. And we have to stand for those things and we have to fight. We have to fight in our, our, our friendships. We have to fight for our children. We have to fight for our spouses. We have to fight for our loved ones. We have to fight for this world to show them God loves them. God does not have a desire for them to, to be punished, for them to, to face eternal consequences of, of what sin has caused in our lives. And sometimes that means that we have to do and we have to say very hard things. And sometimes we have to get uncomfortable with things. And we can't shrink back. And we can't allow fear to cause us to be quiet. Because if I do that, if I allow fear to control me, if I allow fear to, to let me to say, you know, I don't think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up to this. I don't think I'm going to set the example for my family. I don't think I'm going to treat this world the way that I should treat it. If I allow fear to control me, well, you might see that. And you might think, you know, if, if he's not allowing fear to control him, maybe I, maybe I don't need to do those things either. And I might see that in you, and I think to myself, if they can't do it, these people that I have so much respect for and so much love for, if they feel like they can't do it, what hope do I have of being able to do it? And we see how fear spreads, and our children look at us and they watch us. And so, brethren, we have to, we have to encourage those who are faint-hearted. And what that means, brethren, is that we look for people that are hard at work and we go back to what we begin with. We appreciate them and we encourage them, don't grow weary. And there are so many people that I could pull out of this very audience and say this is an example of that. The one that just keeps coming to my mind over and over again and I, I don't want to, to embarrass or put anybody on the spot so, so we won't speak long about this. But the encouragement that I get from, from hearing about Sister Jewel and the support that she has given her family over these last several days. Over and over again, she is there. She is for them in a time when it is very difficult and it's very hard, and she's showing them this is what a follower of Christ looks like. Someone who loves their family and sacrifices their time to try and go and show them compassion and kindness and patience. And brethren, we need to see that. Because you know what? I'm, it's so easy for me to see. It's so easy for me to get my phone out and see people died today. People murdered people today. People are stealing and lying, are involved in all sorts of illicit conduct, and the world is filled with darkness. And that causes me to want to shrink back a little bit. And so we need to look at the good examples of our brethren. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 says for us to mark them. You ever think about that? 
We, we think about marking people as these are people we don't want to follow. We put a, I'm not pointing at anybody in general. We, we put a, a mark on them. We're not going to follow their example. But Philipp, and Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, you mark them. You take note of those whose example you can follow, who are working in the kingdom, who are, who are serving Christ. We need to do more of that. We need to do that because it helps us to encourage those who are faint-hearted. It helps us to seek encouragement ourselves. And then he says, and then you go on to this next one. He says, then you help the weak. You admonish the unruly, you encourage the faint-hearted, and you help the weak. And I think we have developed a very specific uh, trait as, as Christians, and that is we can point out the weak because they're, they're not like us. We find so I have the attitude of the Corinthians sometimes. I'm, I am a strong Christian, and so I can find the weak Christians. They're the ones that don't believe like I do. And so we kind of go around and go, oh, you have a problem with this? You have a problem with that? You, you're, you're not for certain how to understand these passages or you don't apply these passages? You're a weak brother. I found one. I found a weak brother. What do I get? That's kind of the way we treat it sometimes. Paul is saying is here's what you get. You get a responsibility. Maybe they are weak. Maybe that is very true. You found someone that is, that is weaker than you in Christ. Your responsibility is to help them. You see them, you make a note of them, and you say, I am going to try and do things to help this person. And how do I do that? The same way that I admonish the unruly and I encourage the faint-hearted. With patience. The unruly may not listen to the warning that you give them. And the faint-hearted may not take courage. They may not listen to, to the words that you try to say to them to build them up and strengthen them. They may continue to be filled with fear. And the weak may never get any stronger. I'll tell you, very unlikely is that to happen overnight. But it may not ever happen at all. But if we operate with patience, then we're operating under the impression that those things can happen. Patience isn't just, I'm going to do this a whole bunch even though I, never, I know it's never going to work. Patience is, I believe it's possible for the unruly to become ruly. The faint-hearted to be strengthened. The weak to be made strong. I believe it's possible. And so I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this to continue to help. And I will be patient and I will labor and it will be hard and it will be difficult. But it, it doesn't matter to me because they're my brethren. And they are worth it to me. And so he says, because you have eyes that are set over top of this world around you, you're looking past that to eternity. You behave these ways towards one another. He goes on. Let's read a little bit more. Verses 15-21. through 21. He says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So, I want to go just a little bit faster here as he shifts away. And, and, and we probably could have lumped chapter, or verse 15 in with the rest and said he's still talking about how we treat one another. But he's beginning to mold his his view a little bit here is what he's talking about from how we treat one another, how we conduct ourselves towards one another, towards how we conduct ourselves towards life in general. He says, don't repay evil for evil, but rather do good for all. Seek that which is good for one another and for all men. 
I think that's something we, you know, if, if you want a verse that you're going to have on a coffee cup or you're going to put on your wall or you're going to tattoo on your body, that's a verse I could have tattooed across my head. Do good for all. Because it's so easy to say, they hurt me, I should be able to hurt them back. That is justice, is it not? They cut me off in traffic. If I can get in front of them, maybe I'll cut them right back off in traffic. He says, do good for all. Do not seek to repay evil for evil. We need to think about that more often. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. When do we do these? When are we to be people who are rejoicing? When are we to be people who are given to prayer and, and to taking our, our, our words before the Lord? And when are we to be thankful? Every time. In everything. All, always, without ceasing. In so many words, Paul is saying this should be your continual conduct. And he's saying this to a people that you look at from the world standpoint and go, why? why? What do they have to be thankful for? Be thankful that the, 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 they've lost their homes. Be thankful that some of them have died. Be thankful that they are hated. Is that what they're thankful for? Is that what they're rejoicing about? And do they only pray at these times or do they pray when things get better? He says you, you do these things all the time. This is a continual description of your conduct. And he goes on to say, do not quench the Spirit or despise the prophetic utterings. That's an interesting statement. It's an interesting statement that I want us to remember the time frame that is said when he says this. This is at a time, these people live at a time where they don't have the Bible. They can't come together on Sunday morning, the preacher stand up and say, alright, now I know that, that things have gotten hard in this life and you know the, the, the city leaders have come down and, and they're dragging some of us off to, to prison, but I want everybody to turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to read together about salt and light living. They can't do that. They can't pull that out. And, 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 and that's not recorded for them yet. And it's certainly not bound in the collections that we have. And so what are, they live, what are they growing in? How are they learning about what they should do and what their conduct should look like and what their mindset should be? It's through the spiritual gifts and through prophecy that have been given to them. They are being instructed in the way of the Lord through these things. And Paul is telling them in these passages, you have means of instruction for how you ought to walk in the, in, in the light of what God has done for you. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Peter would probably say it this way. Use what God has given you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Whatever that is. Whatever it is that He has provided you to grow in knowledge, use it. Don't let it just go by the wayside. And then he says, hold fast. Examine everything. Examine everything and hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. You know, one thing that I love about this congregation, and specifically about the men, I know we put our, our men's meeting minutes, oftentimes we email them out to everybody, and when I can remember, I print them out and I put them on the back of the bulletin board. We try to make that available. But what a lot of you all don't know is what the, the, the attitudes and, and the things that are said and the mentality that goes into those meetings. Something might come up that maybe on, uh, at the very beginning sounds wise or sounds unwise. And I can't remember a single time where everybody, when, we, when it came up, everybody just said, yeah, let's do it. Or no, let's not do it. Let's, let's just not give it any other thought. One thing that I love about the men of this congregation is they are willing and ready to examine everything. 
And sometimes something's brought up and we think about it and we talk about it. And the conclusion is, you know what? That's, that is not something that we need to do. It wouldn't be wise. It wouldn't be God glorifying. Other times, it's, you know, maybe it's not something that I really want to do, but I recognize that it's something that would be good for the congregation. It's something that falls within the, the authority that God gives us, and we need to do that. They are, the, the men of this congregation are men who examine everything, and they hold fast to what's good. If it is something that is good, we are going to hold that. We're going to cling to that. But if it's evil, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Abstain from it. Abstinence. Push it away. I, I, that will not describe us and our mindsets. Paul is saying in this last section, this is the way that you conduct yourself towards life. But he's doing more than that. He's saying this is how people who have been given eternity conduct themselves towards life. This is how people who have made eternity available to them. The other day, uh, it is my habit, usually, to on the, near the boys' birthdays, take them uh, out for, for breakfast. Just me and, him, me and them will go out and, and share a breakfast together. Almost always it's at Waffle House. That's where we go together to have a birthday breakfast. And Easton's birthday in December fell at a time when we were, there was Christmas going on and there was other birthdays and we were trying to be very conscious of our money usage and everybody was sick and we did not go out for our breakfast. And so this week I said, now Easton, get up, get dressed, we're going to go. And so me and him go out and along the way we're talking and I'm trying to help him to see a point that I'm making. And so I ask him a question. I said, Easton, imagine that you have an old, dirty penny. An old, nasty, dirty penny. And I think everyone can relate to this if you're anything like me. Everyone can relate to this because you can go out to your car after services and you can dig down in your cup holder or in that little cubby in the dash or maybe in the floorboard and you're going to find that penny. That penny that is dull. It's not shiny like all the new ones. It's, it's got this, this layer of just gunk. I mean, when you, when you go to, you touch it, it sticks to your finger and doesn't fall off. And it's kind of greenish and crusty. Um, actually, it looks like this penny. This penny, you can find that penny right there in your car. And what I told Easton was, I want you to imagine that you have got that penny right there. By the way, all that green stuff I found out as I was getting ready for this is called copper hydroxide carbonate. Just in case anyone wants to be in the know, I call it green crusty stuff, but apparently it has a name. Either way, this is yours now. This is your penny. You have that penny. You have this just nasty, crusty green penny. And that's the only thing that you have. You don't have anything else. You don't have any other money to your name but this old dirty penny. And someone comes to you and says, let me give you a million dollars. Million dollars is all yours. No strings attached. No taxes. No, it's just here. Here's your million dollars. I want you to have it. I ask Easton, how do you feel about this penny? He goes, I don't like pennies. So work with me here, bud. How do you feel about this penny? How would I feel? How would I feel about someone? How would I feel about myself? Or how would I feel about someone else in that same situation? If they have been done this, they have this old nasty penny, someone gives them a million dollars, and then I see them one day, and, and they are very upset. They are very furious because their neighbor has a brand new shiny penny. 
One of those, no, I don't know if they mint pennies every year still or not. I'm sure they do. Kyle shaking his head, yes. I don't know why we haven't learned to stop doing that yet. Apparently they're not worth it. But someone's got a brand new shiny penny. And I go, why are you mad? And they say, look at his penny. It's shiny. It's, it's beautiful. And I've got this. I'm mad because I don't have a penny like theirs. Or every time somebody says something about their penny, well, that penny sure looks like it could use some polishing. You don't leave my penny alone. And they constantly check in their pockets because they're afraid I dropped my penny somewhere. Something has happened to my old crusty green penny. I would begin to look at that person. I would think, you're nuts. There's something wrong with you. You have been given a million dollars and all you can think about is this nasty old penny. And I asked Easton as we talked about this, I said, Easton, what's more valuable? A green old crusty pity or a million dollars? And you know what he said? God. I wasn't expecting that answer, but he is absolutely right. He beat me to my punch by, by a mile. God has given the Thessalonians an exceedingly great gift. He's given them eternal life in Christ. And He has given us an exceedingly great gift. He's given us eternal life. That has produced faith. That has produced hope. It's produced love in these Christians. And they have been reminded throughout this book, He died for you. And those who are died and, and, and those who will pass away and those who remain, they all are going to live with Him in eternity. There will be a resurrection. They will go and they will be with God. And you are sons of light. And you don't need to know when that day is coming because you live by faith that it comes and you want to be ready for it because you know God has not destined you to wrath. God has destined you to salvation through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of that, because of what He has done for you and because of what you know about Him and the evidence that has been provided to you and the effect that's happened in your life, live as people who have a great and valuable gift. That is Paul's point to the Thessalonians at the end of this chapter. Paul could have said, don't do this or this and make sure you're doing that. Don't do these things. Do those things. Instead, he spends a whole book encouraging people and reminding them to see what God has done. And he uses a few short verses at the end to say, make sure you live with eyes that are focused on the glorious, valuable gift of eternity that has been made available to you. Brethren, let's wrap up the very end of this, of this book. Reading verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you and He also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He closes telling them, God, the God of peace, the God that has given you this great and valuable gift, He's the one that sets you apart from the rest of the world. He's the one that sanctifies you. Not any of the actions that I'm talking about you doing. You're not somehow making yourself more sanctified. He says it's God that sanctifies you. God is also the one that preserves you. And He reminds them, He doesn't just preserve a part of you. He preserves you entirety. He preserves the soul, the spirit, the body completely. It's His creation. He knows what to do with it. So He says just trust in Him. He is faithful. And He will preserve us without blame. We're going to speak more on that in just a very short second. But he says, God 
is faithful. And so how are you going to conduct yourselves in light of a faithful God that has given you so much? Brethren, as we read the rest of this, we need to be people of prayer. Most certainly. And we need to be people who greet one another in the proper way. He, he talks about greeting one another with a, with a holy kiss. We need to greet one another as different than the people that are on the streets that we just pass by. Walk into Walmart and say, hey, how are you doing? Have a good day and just kind of walk on by. Brethren, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart by God. Our relationship should be one that causes us to want to greet one another as sanctified and set apart by God. It should change the way that we greet one another. We need to be people that live with eyes set on the great and valuable gift of eternity that God has placed on us through His Son Jesus. That means we are appreciative and we care enough to warn and we courage and we help and we seek good and we rejoice and pray and we are thankful and we use what God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We turn away from evil. We hold fast to that which is good. Let's be eternity-minded people. Let's be people who conduct ourselves as if we are eternally focused And this morning, if that's the mindset that you want to have, if you want to be set apart from the evil of this world, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life, if you want to be blameless at the coming of our Lord, you must know what Paul is saying to them. It only comes through God. There is no conduct that I can do that makes myself more set apart from the sinners of this world. It is God. And that's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, That's why He had to be the perfect sacrifice that I couldn't be and to do what I couldn't do so that I could be blameless. And Paul closes reminding them He is faithful. He is calling. And He will bring these things to pass. That includes the things that He talked about earlier about the coming of the Lord being as a thief in the night and that when He comes, they will not escape But he says, brethren, you are not in darkness. We don't have to be in darkness either. We can be sons of light if we will answer His call. The Thessalonians answered that call. The Gospel call came to them. They heard it. They believed it as the Word of God. And they allowed it to change their lives, change even the ways that they acted in their lives. The very end of that Gospel call that they heard were the words of Jesus telling His disciples, His apostles, Go into all the world. Go into all the nations and make disciples. Make people who know Jesus Christ. Know Him well enough to make a decision. To choose to follow Him or not. And he says, once you have made disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them they were to be immersed completely. In Acts chapter 2, we see that beginning on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, when he comes to these men and he's told them enough to recognize who Jesus is and to decide we want to follow Him, and they say, what do we do? He does just that. Tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Jesus closes His teachings to His apostles saying, and then you continue to teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. That is what a church is. Acts chapter 2. 
people who have been told who Jesus is, who have made a decision to follow Him, who have submitted themselves to obedience and continue. They don't say we know everything there is to know. They continue to observe and learn everything they can about what it means to follow Him. That's what the church was then today. That's what the church is today. And that's what Lake Street longs to be. That's us. People who have been given an exceedingly valuable gift. And if this morning we can help you in your desire to to receive of that gift as well and to conduct yourself as someone that doesn't have to look at the things of this world and at the problems that we face with each and every day, but can look above them and look to Christ and have your eyes focused on Him, that's what we want to help you with as well. Can we do that? If so, would you please come forward right now as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.